You know, that's what Psalm 46, verse 10 tells us, to cease striving, just to be still and to know that he's God. And that's what we need to do sometimes is just stop. So let's do that now. Let's just go before the Lord. God, in the midst of all the fear and turmoil, anxiety, the pandemic, and all the problems, we are resting in you. And so, Father, we pray that you'd quiet our souls, and once again, through the working of your Spirit, would you teach us, teach us from your Word, and make us responsive as your disciples. And so we pray expectantly, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, hey, if you want to find your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And got a quick question. Last week, I threw out a little challenge. Did anybody memorize Matthew 5.3, the first beatitude? Did anybody got it? I, I need to see a hand. If you, you have it. Anybody? We got, okay. What, what, okay. Who could quote it? With your mask on. Nobody can quote it? I, you know, go ahead. I can recognize you even with your mask on. What is it? Whoa, good job. All right, so you know what? I'm going to set lunch up here, Chick-fil-A, okay? Now, remember, they're closed on Sundays, okay? So, but can you remember that? There's your lunch right there for you, okay? Good job. All right, so... I knew you guys would be busy during the pandemic memorizing the Bible, and that was awesome. Good job, Mike. Love it. Well, that's what we've been doing. Last Sunday, we started our series, Kingdom Living in a Broken World, and that's indeed what we're living in right now. And Jesus began his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with what we call the Beatitudes. It's from the Latin beatus, which means blessing, happy. And the Beatitudes that he gave us are completely countercultural. No one thinks like this. In fact, if we were to rewrite the Beatitudes like in the 21st century, we would, uh, we'd have it quite differently. In fact, let me give you some ideas of how our world would say you are blessed. See if this sounds familiar. Like we would say, blessed are the rich and famous because you're always going to get the best seats at the game and everybody's going to listen to you. Blessed are the good looking because you're going to maybe end up on People Magazine. What could be better than that, right? Blessed are those of you who know how to party because you're really the ones who know how to have fun. Blessed are the movers and shakers because you're making a name for yourself. Blessed are those who demand their rights because they are going to get heard. And blessed are those who have made it to the top because you can look down upon everybody else. That's kind of how the world thinks that you're blessed. But I want you to know that when Jesus spoke these words finding, that we find here in Matthew chapter 5, they are radical. They're countercultural and they're counterintuitive. And perhaps the most radical and countercultural and intuitive one that we've got is the one we're going to look at today. It's the second beatitude. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And it says, Blessed are you who mourn for you shall be comforted. It could be translated, happy are the sad. Does that make any sense? Certainly not to this world. Happy are the sad. So in order for us to make sense of this, let's first of all realize 
Who is Jesus speaking to? Remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 1? He is speaking to his disciples. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. A disciple is a learner, someone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus. If you like a little more expanded definition of a disciple, it's one who is in an intentional and relational process of maturing as a Christ-centered believer and is being mobilized for ministry. You see, what Jesus is doing, he's taking those who are trusting him and he's training them, developing them, mobilizing them, having them grow in maturity. That's why he's giving these beatitudes. It's like the very first one. Remember the one that we just heard? 5-3. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you've come to God with a humble heart. Do you know why? Because you're in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's reign and rule through his son, and it is the joy of those who are in relationship with him. And so those of us who are in the kingdom of God, he has called us to a way of life, a way of life in Christ. And that leads us to this next beatitude that you find in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are you who mourn, for you shall be comforted. So what does it mean to mourn? Now, usually when we think of mourning, we think of, people who have lost someone dear to them. Someone close, someone special has died. And there's mourning and grief, and it, and it hits us at the core of our being. But grief can also take place when you lose a job or a season of life has gone away or a loss of health. Grief can take uh, root and a variety of scenarios in our life. But oftentimes, we associate grief with mourning those who have passed away from this life. The Jewish people have a custom. It's called sitting shiva. And if you have Jewish friends, you know that they've had for hundreds of years this practice. It's referred to as sitting shiva. And what happens is that Uh, For seven days after a funeral, uh, Jewish people make this a practice where they sit like either on the floor or on stools to show that their heart has been brought so very low. For seven days, they do none of the normal things that they would do. They don't cook. They don't go to work. Um, The only place that they will go is to the synagogue. They put drapes and coverings over all of their mirrors. And when people come to visit, nothing is to be said. If you're a visitor, you do not initiate conversations. Now, if the one who is grieving would like to speak about something, then you can. But they do this not to try to distract or get away from mourning. Actually, they have these practices so that you experience it deeply, and so that it is a shared experience. I want you to know to mourn is to be brokenhearted. It cuts us to the very core of who we are, and no one is exempt. It doesn't matter your color, your creed. 
It doesn't matter where, you're, where you come from, whether young or old, rich or in poverty. We all have times of great grief. And so then we come then to this beatitude where Jesus says to his kingdom citizens, blessed are you who mourn. What did Jesus mean by this? I think in order to understand this, we have to understand grief. Let's begin our understanding by actually looking at God who grieves. Do you know that very early on in the Bible, it says in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. To grieve is to be saddened by the things that make God sad and make God grieve, like the wickedness and the wretchedness of the world. You know, the Son of God, Jesus, do you know that he was grieved? On two different occasions, it's recorded in the Gospels that Jesus wept. I'm sure you're familiar with one of them. In John chapter 11, there was a, a scene that was recorded where a very good friend of Jesus, a guy by the name of Lazarus, was very sick, actually sick to the point of death. Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus and said, come quickly. He is very sick and going to die. But by the time that Jesus made it to Bethany, not too far away from Jerusalem, Lazarus had died. And just to kind of pick it up in Luke chapter 11, beginning like in verse um, 32. Listen to what takes place. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, he would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews that came with her, they were also weeping. And so Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said, come and see, Lord. And then it's recorded, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. It's the shortest verse in the English Bible. But I want you to know it's one of the verses that tells us the most about Jesus. The depth of his humanity of his love, of his care, of his concern. But Jesus wept. He's not indifferent. He is intimately acquainted with our pain and our grief. So why was Jesus, though, weeping? I mean, certainly he knew that he was going to actually raise Lazarus in just a matter of minutes. When it says that Jesus wept, it wasn't like, well, yeah, just like a little tear in his eye or a little lump in his throat. No, even those who were observing saw that, indeed, he was deeply moved. So why was Jesus weeping? Well, one is that he was weeping because a very dear friend of his had died. And he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus back from the dead, but you know, he also knew that death was going to continue to stalk Lazarus and everyone else and rob people of relationships on this earth. 
That's not how God intended. And so Jesus wept. But let me give you another series of reasons why Jesus was weeping. Jesus was weeping because of the lack of faith, even among people that loved him and trusted him and were following him. You know, like Mary saying, like, if you had been here, then he wouldn't have died. You know, when Jesus is standing at that tomb, just a little bit outside of Bethany, everything that is wrong with the world was present there and caused Jesus to weep. I mean, there was sickness and death and loss and unbelief, and it broke his heart. In fact, there were people that, if you just keep reading, are plotting to kill him. And so Jesus wept. This is not what God intended. These are the effects and the widespread effects of sin, literally tearing, creating separation and death. You know, the other instance that we have recorded in Scripture where Jesus wept is in Luke 19. It's when Jesus is about to make his entrance into Jerusalem. It's a week before he was actually going to be apprehended, tried, beaten, crucified, and rise again. It was the week of Passover. And you remember that they were putting down palm branches and people were calling out and crying out, Hosanna, son of David. They were making all these messianic cries. You're here. But as Jesus turned the corner in the midst of this parade of all these people calling out, Hosanna, son of David, it says in Luke 19, verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. I am the king. I'm offering you the kingdom. Jesus knows that just in a matter of days, the same voices that are calling out Hosanna, son of David, are going to yell out, crucify him, and they will do so. He saw the hypocrisy, the evil intent of heart, the destruction of sin, and Jesus wept. You know, we weep. Certainly when people close to us die. But you know that we also weep over the living, their behavior and their actions. Um, You see this, like in Psalm 119, verse 136, it says, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep the law. The psalmist sees people just living in violation to God and his word could care less. For those whose hearts are just captured by God, that's not just something like, well, it's just an alternative way of life or not a big deal. It causes one to grieve. Classic example of this is like Ezra, and he sees that all these people had married these, his Jewish people had married pagan wives, and they had bought in and started worshiping all these false gods. And Ezra's pulling out hair out of his face, out of his beard, and out of the top of his head, and he's grieving. You know, the Apostle Paul, he grieved over the sin of people in churches. You know, if you really want to understand the Apostle Paul, look at him as a parent caring for children. I want you to know that as a parent, 
You care deeply about your children and their hearts. And that helps you make a lot of sense, like when you come to a book of like First and Second Corinthians. When, like the Corinthians, man, they, they were manufacturing sin, a level of immorality that even the pagans were embarrassed about. And yet they kind of prided it like, well, we're a pretty tolerant church because we can handle this, this kind of immorality. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21, Paul is saying, listen, when I come to you, am I going to be grieved? Because there are some in your midst and you have not repented of your immorality, your impurity, your sensuality, and your debauchery. You're just like living as if it doesn't matter and yet you're calling yourselves followers of Jesus. And he says, when I come, will I be grieved? You know, if you're a parent, you understand Paul's perspective. You see, we grieve because of the behavior of the living sometimes. I mean, that's what's happening right now in our country, right? Look at the widespread pain, racism still existing after decades in our country. We have people that experience an immense amount of hurt, sense of betrayal, just because of their color of their skin. We have uh, lawlessness We've got this huge wound that has just never been healed, and it causes you to grieve. I mean, when you look at other issues that exist in our world, like children who are put to work in these sweatshops or made to work in these very dangerous, like, diamond mines, or young girls that are apprehended and turned into slaves I know that we don't really want to think about those things. We like to ignore them and pretend they don't exist, but I want you to know when you look at the evil in our world, it causes you to grieve and to mourn. And so we have sorrow. I want you to know that if you're a disciple of Jesus, this verse right here tells you you're going to mourn sometimes. Yeah, we... We mourn when people close to us pass away, but we mourn over our own sin. We mourn over the evil that is in our world. So how? How does God bring blessing to those disciples who are brokenhearted? It says right here, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want you to know in the midst of all the heartbreak and the grief and the mourning, and the loss, and the just like, this is not right, and my life will never be the same. I want you to know that God brings comfort in Christ. Let me just tell you the blessings that come. Now, remember that word blessed. It means this. It's the God-given capacity to enjoy God's goodness and to extend it to others. God gives his people the capacity to know and experience his goodness and to extend it to others. And he says, blessed are you who mourn because you will be comforted. I'm going to strengthen you. I will encourage you. So how does God do that? Well, I just have kind of listed some of the ways he does that. God brings blessing, first of all, through the comfort of his presence. When you've lost a position... When you're going through mourning because of a broken relationship, when someone close to you has died, you need to grieve. You need to go through the process. If you try to short-circuit it, 
you're only shortchanging your own soul. And let me tell you what that process is. It's, it's well documented because everybody grieves. You're going to go through these stages. I'll tell you what they are. You might be in them right now. There's, first of all, there's like a denial. Like, no, this, this did not happen. And then there's anger. You're mad, mad about the situation, mad at God, mad at a lot of things. And then there's like depression. You, uh, it's like you don't even feel anymore. It's like you're just passing through, like you're a vapor. But then that final stage is you come to an acceptance. I want you to know, though, that God gives us his presence. You know how the Gospel of Matthew ends? Do you remember what the resurrected Jesus said? He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will always be with you. I will never leave you. I will never desert you. I am with you. You can count on me. You see, comfort comes from knowing God, knowing who he is, that he's good, that he's sovereign, knowing that he is always going to be with us. Comfort comes from knowing that God loves you, that he's died for you, that he's been resurrected for you, that he's got He's actually prepared a place for you. Comfort comes from knowing that you've been adopted by God. You're one of his dearly loved children, and he has a plan for you. Comfort comes from knowing God and the truth. Friends, if you reject that, you do not know hope, and you don't know peace. But he gives us his presence. And I want to say one thing about this, God giving his presence. There may be a time where you can't actually sense God's presence. As a pastor, I've had numerous occasions where I've been working with an individual. Usually these are really strong believers, and they've at some point in a time of great difficulty said, Grant, I I can't even sense God's presence right now. I want you to know that the ultimate expression of faith is to trust God even when you can't sense his presence. Don't put your faith in your feelings. Put it in the facts and the truth that he is there always, and he'll never leave you or forsake you. You know, let me give you another way that God brings blessing. He does so through the comfort of his promises. Aren't you grateful that God has given us his word because we have truth to hold on to? We don't have to make things up. We have divinely revealed truth. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 might be worth writing down because it tells us that, if, that a loved one who has trusted in Christ, it tells us that they are in his presence when they pass away. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, knowing that it is to be at home with the Lord. Absent from the body, body laid in the ground. Guess what, though? I'm home with the Lord. I see him face to face. Um, Paul capitalizes on this exact same truth that he wrote to the Corinthians when he wrote 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, which is a euphemism for death, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. And he goes on to say, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. People that have believed in Christ, they're not lost. They're found with him. You know exactly where they're at. And you've got the promises of God's word on that. As Christians, we find great comfort because we take an eternal perspective. We understand there's a lot more than the here and now and this temporal life. There is life eternal. We are eternal beings. And we take great comfort in that. God brings blessing through the comfort of his people. Did you know that? God brings blessing through the comfort of his people. Remember like what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. He says, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us with the coming of Titus. Paul says, I was depressed, really depressed, sparing of even life. But God sent Titus. You see, as kingdom citizens, those who follow Jesus... God is seeking to develop the capacity of your heart. It's called transformation. He seeks to do his work in you and then through you. And that is why, as believers, we can step outside of our comfort zone and we can weep with those who weep. Why? Because God intends to do his work through his people. Now, when you look to bring comfort to the grieving... Let me tell you different ways you can do that. You can pray with people. You can just be with them. Just, just being. You don't have to talk a lot. You just be with them. Providing meals, doing something for them, writing expressions of care and concern. All of these are ways to show and express care. But make sure you do show care before you start expressing truth. You need to exercise what is called discernment you got to have a little bit of EQ, the ability to read a situation, to know when it is proper to speak and when it's best just to listen and just to be there. God will make it clear when it's time to talk about these matters. But you always got to lead with care. Comfort first, then share truth. Let me give you another way that God brings blessing. He does so through the comfort of his power. He brings new strength, vitality, even ministry through grief. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and then get this, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves receive from God. You see that? We needed comfort. God brings it, encouragement, strength to us, and he does so for the purpose that one day we're going to return that comfort and pass it on to others. Friends, God gives us the ministry of comfort and he does so by first giving us comfort from him. And let me give you one other way that God blesses us. God blesses us by bringing the comfort of his providence. You see, God is working all things together for good 
to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know, it says like in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, 7, 17, did you know it says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes? Right now we got grief and sorrow and pain and suffering, but I want you to know that God is going to take away our tears. And it's going to be real. Do you know why? Because God is going to make all things right. There is going to be perfect justice. There is going to be love, unity, peace, hope. There is going to be joy. All of this brokenness that we're experiencing in this life, I want you to know in the life to come, God is going to provide absolute joy through a diversified humanity that has been unified in Christ. That's why it says like in Revelation chapter 5, that there is going to be gathered around the one who is worthy, around the throne, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, all unified by Jesus Christ who has given and sacrificed his blood on their behalf so that we might enjoy God and each other forever. And our hearts are going to be filled with unending joy and worship. And friends, that is the comfort that we find from God's providence. And so, friends, I want you to know, the gospel is for the heartbroken. Did you know that until you are absolutely at a point of grief and you're heartbroken over your sin, you're still separated from God? You see, the gospel is for the brokenhearted. Those who realize that life isn't right, I'm not right, this world's not right, how we're treating each other sometimes, that's not right. I need forgiveness and I need God. And I want you to know that God has remedied the situation because Jesus is the man of sorrows. Remember what's said about him, Isaiah chapter 53, verse Three and five. Let me read this to you. And I want you to listen to this. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Do you know who he's speaking about? He's speaking about the very one who gave us Matthew 5, 4. Jesus, Messiah, the man of sorrows. He says, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. Who brings the comfort? Christ does. The man who is intimately acquainted with grief, the man of sorrows. If you've got a broken heart and you are hurting, let me tell you where you find help and hope. It is Jesus. He is well acquainted with grief. You see, the blessing of true comfort comes from those who are trusting in the King. You know that our brokenness and our mourning it becomes the pathway 
of knowing God's goodness and experiencing his comfort. God meets us in our mourning. That's why this beatitude is written. There's a guy by the name of Kelly James. Uh, at the time, he's a 48-year-old landscape architect, and he and a couple of buddies had decided that they were going to go and climb Mount Hood on December 9th, 2006. Now, when they got started after the base camp and they're going to head up Mount Hood in, up there in Oregon, everything was kind of fine. But as would happen sometimes at Mount Hood, blizzards can come almost unexpectedly. And one did. It was horrendous. As they were coming down off the mountain or trying to, it got so bad they had to take shelter in one of these snow caves. Uh, Kelly was able to use his cell phone and actually connect with his wife, telling her what, had hap- what was happening. But the rescue teams that tried to actually go and get up Mount Hood found that the blizzard was so bad that they couldn't even approach it. And tragically, Kelly and his two friends, they died in that storm. In an interview done by Katie Couric on the CBS Evening News, she interviewed Kelly's widow, a woman by the name of Karen James. And I want to read you a couple of excerpts because this was so very powerful. Karen James demonstrated just such great faith in Jesus Christ. And really, it kind of defined this whole life for this couple. And Katie Couric seemed rather kind of perplexed and even interested as to how this woman could have such strong faith. So Katie Couric asked Karen if she was angry at all for her husband deciding to climb on that day. And Karen said, no, I'm not sorry. I'm really sad our journey is over for a while, and I miss him terribly. But he loved life so much, and he taught me how to love, and he taught me how to live. And I don't know how you can be angry at someone who loved their family, who loved God, and gave back so much more than he ever took. When Katie Couric asked her how her husband would like to be remembered, Karen referred to his faith in Jesus. And then this is what she said. Kelly had this little ornament, and he's had it since he was little. It's a manger. It's just this little plastic thing. And it's always the tradition that our son Jack and Kelly put it on the tree together. And so I said, this Christmas, we're going to put that ornament on the tree. And the one, one of the things that we really understand about Christmas is that little baby born in a barn is the reason our family has so much strength now. And that is really important to Kelly. Kitty Kirk was really impressed with Karen's faith and confidence in God, and she asked, has, has your uh, faith really ever been tested? And uh, she said, no, it's, it's not been tested. I remember one time we were watching TV, and Kelly said to me, I can't wait to go to heaven. And I said, what? I mean, we were watching some show that had nothing to do with it. And he said, yeah, that's going to be really cool. And I said, well, can you hold off? Can, can we wait? But he wasn't scared. And so those conversations are what I hold on to. 
And friends, the difference in this life and the life to come is our faith in Christ. You see, the blessing of true comfort comes from those who are trusting in the King. So go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Leave all your little petty arguments aside. Don't put your faith in your feelings. Just go to Jesus because he said, and he's promised, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Friends, this is the life of the kingdom citizen. Let's pray.